you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 20. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in the middle of a series through the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Uh, now, oddly enough, in 1 Kings chapter 20, Elijah is not mentioned. Uh, and yet, uh, the word of God is mentioned. The prophets who had been hidden in caves have, after Mount Carmel, they have come out. They are publicly ministering once again. Uh, they are no longer in hiding. Uh, and God, through them, has much to say and much to teach us. And so this morning, we turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. It's a, a little bit of a longer uh, text, but it's a, a wonderful story. And so we read it in its entirety. This is God's word. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now, see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says Yahweh, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says Yahweh, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen 
And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said, Yahweh is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of Yahweh, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, well, so shall your, your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says Yahweh, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you for recording for us the history of your people. Lord, we ask that your word would come now, that it would be as it is, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, would it pierce us? Would it reveal us? Would it expose us? Lord, would it do all that you have intended it to do in our lives? Lord, we thank you for everyone who hears my voice this day. Lord, would they hear your voice through your word? Lord, would you be exalted? Would you exalt your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior? By your Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. We live in amazing times, don't we? With all sorts of devices and technologies that will enable us to do so many things. And yet, sometimes we do so little with those things, don't we? Uh, Think of all the tools and machines and devices that you own. Uh, Perhaps you have at some time in your life had a Swiss army knife. They could do 20, 30, 40, 50 things. And perhaps you did one thing with it. You used the knife. Or maybe you have a, like I do a Dremel rotary tool that can do 175 different tasks. And I've done four, right? I've cut off nails. I've sanded. I've trimmed the top of my door when it gets uh, stuck. And I've sharpened my lawnmower blade. You perhaps wear a smart watch with uh, all abilities to, to monitor your bodily functions and you count your steps, right? Or perhaps uh, you, like me, use Microsoft Word and Excel and you use about 5% of all that those programs have the power to do. Uh, or maybe you look at your dishwasher and you see all those settings and then you push normal wash, right? And you're like, what are all those settings for anyway? I, I fear that oftentimes we treat the word of God the way that we tend to treat our technology. God has spoken for many different purposes, for many different reasons. His word comes to us with all sort of uses and functions, and yet we either don't know or we don't care or we just don't use God's word the way that he intends us to use it. Oftentimes, we we use it just one way. There's just one way that we use the Word of God, and we do it that way over and over and over again. For some of you, the Bible is merely a a theological textbook, a source book. For others of you, the the Bible is just a a checklist of rules, things that you have to do. For some of you, the Bible is just chicken soup for the soul. It's just a a book of daily good thoughts that you look at five minutes in the morning, and then you're, you're done with it for the day. Well, in our passage this morning... God is showing us through his prophets, through the men of God whom he has sent to King Ahab, a variety of different ways that he intends his word to be used. And so I want us to think about that this morning. And my prayer is that you would use God's word as he intends it to be used, as we see it used even here in this chapter. God has given his word first to comfort us, second to counsel us, and third, to convict and change us. And those three or four C's are what I want us to think about this morning. First, God has given us his word to comfort us. Now, this is possibly one of the best stories in the Old Testament that you've never read, right? It's an amazing story. It has a a surprise ending. Uh, It's got some classic lines. It's got battle and action back and forth. It's got some, some wonderful heretical theology on the part of the Syrians, Right? There is all sort of things in this story. Uh, Ben-Hadad understands that there has been a famine in the land of Israel. 
And he wants to take advantage of that opportunity to leverage this opportunity to defeat his weakened enemy, Ahab and, and Israel. So he gathers this coalition of, of 32 tribal leaders or kings. Uh, perhaps you remember back in the days of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, we would hear of militias and uh, these, these tribal groups. That's sort of what's going on here. There, there are these 32 tribal leaders and, and kings that are along with Ben-Hadad. And they go to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they besiege the city. Uh, eventually, Ahab knows that he is defeated. And so not wanting things to get any worse for Israel, he, he accedes to the demands of Ben-Hadad. He grants them. He says, yes, I will give you my silver, my gold, my wives, my children. Uh, he declares Ben-Hadad to be his Lord, his, his master. Uh, he says that I and all that I own, it's yours. But then Ben-Hadad ratchets up the demands, doesn't he? He responds in verse six and, and says, I'm not just going to take your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. I'm also, also going to come and I'm going to search your houses and anything that you delight in, anything that you value, I'm going to take that too. I'm going to take everything. And, and Ahab says, wait a minute. I said I'd give you my gold, my silver, my wives, my children, but, but this is too much, right? You're asking for, for too much now. And so he convenes the elders and he lays his situation before them in verse 7. And they agree that he should not consent to this second demand. And so he sends that word back to Ben-Hadad via his messengers. You see it there in verse 9. And, and then Ben-Hadad calls a curse down upon himself. He says that, that he will turn Samaria into dust. And then Ahab responds with one of the classic lines in all the Old Testament. Let not him who straps his armor on boast as he who takes it off. All right? Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Don't stomp on the midfield logo or smoke the victory cigars before you've even started the game. All right? Ben-Hadad's reaction in, in 12 is also great. He throws his beer down in his tent and he tells his men, station yourself, right? To your stations. He's ready to fight because of Ahab's uh, mockery of him. So here's Israel. There's some courage there, but the odds are stacked against them in a big way. Ben-Hadad has the upper hand. Uh, that's why Ahab had agreed to submit to him so quickly. Uh, he has called this curse down upon him. If you go back to that curse in verse 10, uh, you'll see that it doesn't just imply he's going to destroy Samaria, but his army is huge, right? He's going to pulverize Samaria into dust, and there won't even be enough dust for everyone in his army to have even a handful. So Israel's in a hopeless situation. But then we read in verse 13, Hanei, Hanei, the Hebrew word for behold, this word that often carries with it a connotation of surprise as when Jacob married Rachel and then the morning after their wedding, Hanei, it was Leah, right? There's a surprise to this word oftentimes. And I think that's what's going on even here. Hanei, behold, a prophet of God. In the midst of this hopeless situation comes to Ahab, the king who least deserves the word of God. It comes to Ahab, surprisingly, graciously, God taking the initiative to speak to this wicked king. And what does God's word say? God's word brings to Ahab comfort, encouragement, assurance, hope. Look what he says there. You've heard what Ben-Hadad says, but now thus says Yahweh, verse 13. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. God's prophet brings to Ahab a promise of victory. And through his prophet, God comforts his people 
with hope in a hopeless situation. Now, of course, as we'll see in a bit, God's word does come to pass. But look down at verse 23, and you'll see another example of God's word comforting his people. After getting beaten soundly, Ben-Hadad and the Syrians uh, know that they need to go back to the war room. And so as they, they do their, their debrief, they think, well, here's our problem. We were fighting on the wrong terrain. Their God is the, the God of the, uh, the, the hills, and we've been fighting the hills, so we need to fight on the plains. And we need to, to get rid of the kings and put some commanders in leadership instead. This pagan understanding of deities who have this sort of territory, and if you fight on their territory, you're going to lose, and, but if you fight on our God's territory, you're going to win. Uh, that was their, their thinking, and so they want to fight on the plains. Well, they come. In verse 26, we read that in the spring, the battles engage once more between Syria and Israel, and you note again the disparity between the two armies. Israel is like two little flocks of goats, the text tells us in verse 27, whereas Syria fills the country. But again, the word of God comes to Ahab and to Israel for comfort. Thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said Yahweh is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Again, a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word of assurance and hope, a strengthening word in the face of long odds. Do you use the word of God in this way? Does the word of God comfort you in your distress? Do you need that word even this morning? See, God has given to us the truth of the scriptures to encourage us, to strengthen us, to assure us in those situations that seem hopeless, that seem frightening, that seem like there is no way out when you're caught between inflation and a fixed income or inflation and the loss of a job, when you're hearing from the doctor that report that the mass is indeed cancerous, or maybe it's not your mass, it's a loved one's mass, your child's mass. And perhaps you've heard that the cancer that you thought was in remission has come back. You hear from your spouse that you're being left for another woman or another man. When your child dies in a freak accident. All these sorts of situations that come upon us, the Lord is with us with a word of comfort, a word of strengthening. In our deepest distress, in our time of need, as we see here in this text, God's word comes to comfort us. Indeed, his comfortable words are across the Bible, aren't they? But particularly there in the Psalms. Psalm 46, verse 1 that reminds us that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 34, verse 8, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We need these words of, of comfort. Do you read your Bibles looking for the comfort of the scriptures? Do you read the scriptures and remind yourself of these glorious truths that God will not leave you or forsake you, but he is your helper? What can man do to you? The Lord, your God, he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Though youth grow weary and tired, the Lord our God is never weary, never tired. He is the one whose understanding is inscrutable, and therefore he can strengthen the weary, says Isaiah in chapter 40. 
It's truths like this that God has given to us in the midst of our affliction to comfort us. Use the word of God for your comfort and for your strength. But secondly, we see in this passage that God has not only given us his word to comfort us, but also to counsel us. Go back to this first prophetic encounter between Ahab and the son of the prophets. It was more than a word of comfort, wasn't it? Because after he comforted him with the promises of God, he then counseled him. And it was a counterintuitive counsel, the way God's counsel so often is, according to our worldly thinking. When God tells Ahab that he will deliver the Syrians into his hand, Ahab reasonably asks for some detail. How will the Lord accomplish this deliverance? And the answer is by the young men of the rulers of the, 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 the districts, the provinces. And Ahab will throw the first punch. And so Ahab gathers these presumably inexperienced soldiers and, and servants, and he sends them into what seems to be a suicide mission against the Syrians. Fortunately, as we read there in verse 16, Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings were inebriated. Uh, and so when the word arrives that soldiers from Samaria are coming out, uh, e either in a drunken stupor or in a, a, a fit of arrogance, he says these sort of nonsensical words, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they come out from war, take them alive. Well, they had come out for war and it wasn't much of a contest. Verse 21 tells us that Israel struck the Syrians with a great blow. And now you notice after the battle, the prophet comes near to Ahab again and gives him a word of counsel. In verse 22, come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you again. Here we have once more the prophetic counsel giving Ahab advance notice that will enable him to prepare for the battle to come. The point is this, God's word doesn't only come to comfort us, but also to counsel us. The prophets come to Ahab not only to give him the comfort of, of God's promises, but to give him instructions, directions, to, to help him in the midst of the battle. And so it does for us as well. God directs us by his word. Now, to be sure, our battles as Christians on this side of the cross are no longer military or, or physical battles, right? We engage in spiritual conflict against the world, the flesh, the devil's dark forces. We've seen it, if you've been with us on Sunday nights, as we've studied through 2 Peter, God's divine power has granted to us everything that we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of God. And how do we come to know God? But through his word. The counsel of the scriptures is what we need in order to live before God day by day. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that, that the Bible makes us wise unto salvation, that it has been given by inspiration of God for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that we might live and do every good work. God's word, as we've even sung this morning in Psalm 19, makes wise the simple. It directs our paths. We see it in the Ten Commandments. We see it in Jesus' teaching while he was on earth. We see it in Jesus' teaching while he's in heaven through his apostles in the New Testament epistles. So clearly, here is how we are to walk in a manner that pleases the Lord. And so I ask you, do you possibly go to the scriptures for the comfort they give? You like those texts, they feel good to you, but you don't heed the counsel of the word of God. 
You don't search the scriptures to find out how does God want me to live? You see, so often our default source of counsel and instruction and direction for life is not found in the Bible, but is found in the world. It is found in our own fallen minds, whatever feels good to us, right? Whatever everyone else is doing, that's the way we need to think about how we should live. Now, to be sure, you're not going to find your exact situations here in the Bible, right? Many folks are wanting counsel. Lord, what what should I do for a living? What should I do? What job should I take? What major should I major in? We're not going to find answers the way that Ahab found answers, very specific answers. And yet, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, the Lord's word, his principles, his directions, his instructions, his commandments can be applied to all of our life so that we might walk with confidence and wisdom no matter what situation we find ourselves in. We hold this as a truth Right, as Presbyterians, as Protestants, that the Bible is our only rule for faith and for practice. Right? The Bible is our rule. It is the supreme authority within our life. And therefore, we must use it in that way. God has given it to us to use for counsel. Well, last, we see in this story that God has given his word not just to comfort us or to counsel us, but also to convict and to change us. This battle The second battle in the spring was devastating to Syria. 100,000 soldiers were killed. 27 had the the wall of Aphek fall down upon them, leaving them defenseless, as we see in the battle of Jericho. Uh, Ben-Hadab goes into this inner chamber in Aphek, it tells us, realizing that the tables have turned, and now all of a sudden he's the one who is on the the raw end. He is the one who is is in trouble. His servants speak to him and say, look, the the, the kings of Israel, we we know them to be those who will show mercy. So let's humble ourselves. Let's, let's, Let's bow before them. So they clothe themselves with sackcloth and robe and plead for their lives. And during the interchange between Ahab and the servants, they hear this, this strange little word, brother. Like, wait a minute, did he just say? That, that, that Ben-Hadad is his brother, like a peer, someone on the same level. And so they said, yes, Ben-Hadad, your brother. And Ahab says, is he still alive? I want to see him. And so they gladly bring him to Ahab. And we read that Ahab brings him up into his chariot. There's a kinship there. There's a covenant that is made. Ben-Hadad says, I'll restore the cities that my father took from you. And you can have bazaars, that is, you know, trading posts in our cities. And he allows Ben-Hadad to go free. And then all of a sudden, in verse 35, the, the setting changes and we're, we're in the, uh, the, the midst of the, the, the prophets, the sons of the prophets, as they're called. And one prophet asks another prophet to, to strike him, to wound him by the, the word and the commandment of the Lord. Well, the second prophet refuses to obey and is promptly killed by a lion. The next prophet does, as not surprisingly, what he has asked. The first prophet then with a a wound in his head and and bandages wrapped around his head goes to Ahab, tells this tale of woe of being entrusted with a soldier and he lost the soldier and therefore he's either going to have to forfeit his life or, or pay a talent of silver which no common soldier could have afforded in that day. And of course, Ahab said, well, you, you've spoken your own judgment. You've spoken your own decree that you're, you're a dead man walking, right? You, you, you have forfeited your life. And then just like Nathan and David and 2 Samuel 
after David has sinned with Bathsheba, this prophet removes the, the bandages off of his head, reveals himself. And you notice what the text said, that Ahab recognized him in verse 41 as one of the prophets. And now this prophet turns the story back onto Ahab and says, you are the man. You are the one who has let Ben-Hadad go contrary to the word of God. God had devoted him to destruction and you have spared his life. Ahab should have known better. God had told him that he had delivered him in his hand. Verse 13 the law of God in Deuteronomy clearly had shown what holy warfare was to be like. King Saul had lost his kingship because he had not put Agag to death back in 1 Samuel 15. It only made sense for the future of the kingdom of God that you would get rid of the enemies of God's people. And yet here is Ahab looking out not for the future of his people, but for his own future. Presumably, he's thinking about the fact that, that here's Israel, here's Syria, and above them is Assyria, who we, knew was, we know is growing in power during this time. A few years after this story, we read in secular history of a, of a battle in which Syria and Ahab ally one another and fight against Assyria in the north. And so here is Ahab, who disobeys the commands of God right, in order to put his economic and his military security first. He puts his own assessment of his needs above obedience to God. And so the prophetic word comes to convict him of sin, to reprove him, to show him the evidence of his sin in a very graphic way with this bloody head. And again, here is the point. God's word has been given for us as well to be used to convict us of sin, to reprove and to rebuke us to bring to light and to expose, to set forth our sin in the light of God's holiness, to point out to us where it is that we have fallen short of his glory. Now, if we don't like to hear the counsel of God in preference for the comfort of God, much less do we like to hear the conviction of God. Much less do we like to have our sins exposed and, and to be shown for the sinners that we are. We are, like we said from James 1 with the children, those men and women who look at ourselves in the mirror and so often hear the word of God, but do not do it. But God sends his word to reprove us, to convict us of sin, that we might repent, that we might change, that we might walk in his ways and be a doer and not merely a hearer. But for this to happen, it's not enough to merely be shown our sin. Because you see here, even here in this story, the word of God must also reveal God to us. You see that, don't you, in verses 13 and 28, when in his word of, of comfort and assurance, Yahweh says to Ahab, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Right? In verse 13, it's, it's singular. You, Ahab, you alone and in verse 28, it's plural, all of Israel. And it wasn't merely the fact that Yahweh was God. Right? They had learned that in chapter 18 at Mount Carmel. But it's even more who Yahweh is. Who is this God of Israel? To know him as he has revealed himself and to respond appropriately. And it's only when we see who God is that we're able to see our sin aright. It's only when we realize that as Ahab learned and as Israel learned, 
Yahweh, the one true God, he is the covenant God, the God who is faithful to his word, the God who is the God of mountains and of valleys, the God who keeps his promises, the God who is a God of mercy, a God of justice, a God of power. He is a God who is with his people to deliver them, to help them. Indeed, he is a God of amazing grace. The mere fact once more, that they are even receiving prophetic words of comfort and counsel and conviction shows the grace of God to sinners. Now, how much more shall we who have received the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, we live on this side of the incarnation, this side of the cross, we've seen the grace and the power of God revealed so clearly in Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word made flesh. In him, the fullness of deity, all that Yahweh is, dwells bodily in the Son. And in the Son, the Father has brought us salvation, not merely deliverance from a foreign army, but deliverance from our sin, our guilt, our shame, all of our misery. He has given us his Spirit We have grace upon grace upon grace. And so as our sins are revealed to us, we have the hope of the gospel held out to us, the the knowledge that Yahweh, he is God, that, 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 that Jesus Christ, he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the son of the father who has come to bring to us salvation. And so how much more ought we to respond to this knowledge of God in Christ with submission, with obedience. The picture that ends the chapter in verse 43 of Ahab going back to his house, vexed and sullen, right? Unbelieving, disobedient, frustrated that his sin has been revealed to him rather than submissive, rather than humbled and and reverent. Now we'll see that, uh, that, that humility actually at the end of next chapter, But for now, we're seeing in Ahab this picture that is a picture for us to avoid. Rather, God would have us to read this chapter and to walk by faith in his comforting promises, to heed his counsel, his instruction, to humble ourselves as he convicts us and reproves us and seeks to change us and to transform us by his truth and by his grace. So the question I put before you this morning that God puts before us is, will you use the word of God as it's been designed to be used? And not just these three ways, but all the ways that God has sent his word. But particularly these three ways this morning, will you seek the comfort of God in your time of loss and need? Will you heed the counsel of God rather than the counsel of this world? And will you be willing to face the music as it were, to face that prophet with a bandage around his head calling you out. You are the sinner. And you are the one who needs to change. And praise be to God, there is hope for sinners. There is hope for change and the power of the gospel. For indeed, we have all that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And will you not only use the word of God, but will you use it not just for yourself, but for your neighbor? Will the word of Christ dwell within you richly as a church, as a people, so that as we live together and share life together, we will teach and admonish one another, as Paul says in Colossians 3, that we might all grow up 
and to the full maturity that comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. We need one another. We need to be prophets to one another, prophets to ourselves as we read God's word and proclaim the truth of God's word to ourselves and prophets to one another in Christ, speaking words of comfort, words of counsel, words of conviction, words of grace and and life in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, use the word, read the word, spend time in the word even this week. May this summer be a summer of great growth because the word of God is is, is at work in your life as you meditate upon its truths, as you seek to live them out. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for giving to us these glorious stories of your redeeming power and grace and love. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us. You have not left us to figure it out on our own. Lord, we pray that your word would come and draw near to this congregation. Lord, that you would make us to be a people who look to your scriptures for our comfort, for our counsel. Lord, who are willing to be convicted of sin, willing to be changed. Lord, we cannot change ourselves. You must work. And so we ask that you would give us a humble and submissive spirit, that we would not go away, Lord, from times in your words, sullen and vexed. But Lord, we would agree with you that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, we pray that you, by your Son and by your Spirit, would continue to save us in every way. Lord, we ask that you would do this work, that you would give us a love for the Scriptures. Help us to be not merely hearers of your Word, but to be doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.